Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 5, Fighting. We should stop here, Chiasa said as we stood in front of a bicycle stop in Yoyogi. The bicycle game in Tokyo is serious, I had discovered. Although it was my first full day here, I had actually counted more bicycles than cars. I was shocked to see a parking deck for bikes only. On our way over, I saw a policeman on bikes in Shinjuku, and now delivery and messengers on bikes in Yoyogi. Some women seem to balance their whole lives on the bike, their babies and children and food and purses and other items. I saw a Jinza policeman issuing a parking violation to a bicycle. One minute later, a flatbed arrived and towed the bike away. In addition to armored trucks to transport money, they had armored bikes. As she pushed the shop door open, Chiasa shouted, Tadaima! She looked up and down and then called out, Oji-chan! No one answered. She flagged me in. I stepped inside, not really interested, but checking out a mountain bike for 100,000 yen, which is almost 1,000 American dollars. On display were mopeds of different styles and brands. There were some cheap bikes available for 100 or even $30, but they were stacked off to the side. Chiasa disappeared. I walked toward the back of the shop. By a silver curtain, I could hear voices. One of them was hers. They were both speaking in Japanese. I stood close to the curtain. I guess that's why Chiasa bumped into me as she emerged with an elderly man. Oji-chan, kare wa ryoshi. Chiasa introduced us. Oji-chan was one of my vocabulary study words. It meant grandfather. And for some reason, she told him that my name was Ryoshi. Ryoshi? Her slim, tall, laid-back, silver-haired grandfather responded. Chiasa nodded. Hi, Ryoshi. I went along with it, assuming she had her reasons for the cover-up. Or maybe by now she realized this job she had offered to do for me could end up with almost any type of mysterious outcome. Hajime mashite Ryoshi desuka. I greeted him. He smiled and seemed less stiff and formal than the few Japanese men I had observed so far. He fired off some Japanese he fired off some Japanese sentences too advanced for me. Then he and Chiasa got into a quiet, respectful and friendly back and forth. I stepped a few feet away and checked my watch. It was four o'clock. My grandfather says I can't have company in the house while he's away. He won't be home until 9.15 tonight, Chiasa said. I can understand him, I said. I don't know. It's the first time he ever told me that. Usually, I ask for something and he agrees. How many men have you invited over before? None, but, well, that's it then, I said. I'll just have to find another way to view the tapes. No, she said anxiously. My grandfather said we can use the backyard. I'll bring the TV out and run an extension. We can eat dinner back there also. It's nice and warm. 
I knew in my mind there wasn't going to be a picnic with me and her in the backyard. In her backyard. I didn't want her to get too comfortable. Sunset is at 6.30 tonight, she announced. My grandfather said so. What are we going to eat, she asked. Then she added strangely, I don't eat any four-legged animals. What? I needed to hear that one again. No four-legged animals, she repeated. No cows, no pigs, no sheep, no goats, no lambs, no anything with four legs. She faced front as she walked. I walked beside her and looked at her profile. She was different from any woman I had ever known. I smiled. She sensed me looking and asked, What? Nothing, I responded. No four-legged animals. That's cool with me. Wakarimashita. Wakarimashita. I said. She laughed each time I used Japanese vocab. The shade of the maple tree shielded the glare of the sun from the television screen. The red sun had simmered purple with a pink hue, but had not settled yet. The film footage that Chiasa shot in the lobby of Akimi's father's building was clear and crisp. Her hands only shook the shot once or twice. We were both watching the screen. Chiasa narrated. I was watching the details of the visual more than I was listening. Nakamura was on the 32nd floor like I suspected. It was a penthouse. This is the elevator that the public uses, but here is a private elevator, she pointed out. The regular public elevator doesn't take you up to the top floors. They are labeled executive levels. If you press an executive level number, a recording comes on explaining that it's restricted. The stairwell goes up to 28, but then it seals shut. This is me in the lobby. She pointed to the image of herself being filmed. I see. Who's holding the camera? I asked her. One of the school kids, she said, as we watched her huddled in with eight school kids throwing up peace signs beside the company directory. Both her smile and her skin stood out on film standing beside those other school kids who were probably her same age she appeared more powerful it wasn't just her body but something coming through her eyes an energy that swirled around her and that could be seen and felt even on film hold it i said she pressed pause you are so smart she exclaimed softly to me there it is what you were looking for now she had her slim finger on the screen bishaman ikeda she said pointing out his name on the directory even if i hadn't given you the daily yomori news article you would have found his name right there listed on the wall directory my mind shifted back onto the iwa ikeda problem when iwa heard the narita airport announcement she panicked and hung up the phone Either she told my wife that I was here in Tokyo, or she didn't. Either she told her father that I had arrived here in Tokyo, or she didn't. Either Bishamani Keda told Naoko Nakamura, or he didn't. What is the meaning of his name, Bishaman? 
I asked randomly. Let's see, she said, examining the kanji. It is the name of the god of war. Chiasa pronounced each word with emphasis. There was no fear in her voice, but a hint of excitement was apparent. Press play, I told her. As the film continued, images of the parking deck came into view. There was a guard there, private security, Chiasa explained. I waited until one car pulling out stopped at the guard's booth. When the driver and the guard began speaking, I slipped in, but didn't have to go too far. The executive vehicles are all parked on the ground floor. You see there? It's a private elevator, so no one would ever see them entering the building through the front, side, or rear doors, Chiasa explained. I was listening, but focused on the vehicles. The first one was a, was a Toyota Century Royale, built and designed like a Bentley, but it was not British made. It was Japanese. Have you seen this kind of car before? I asked Chiasa. I might have seen it before, but never really noticed it. It was a clever answer, not admitting that there were some things that she didn't know. But I knew that if she had seen the car before, she would have remembered. People who love motorcycles, cars, boats, and planes don't forget the top of the line items, ever. This vehicle on the screen was obviously customed after the Bentley, but made to suit Japanese tastes or even Japanese politics. It's pretty. The seats are wide and wool upholstered. I couldn't get up that close to get all of the features on camera, but the inside of that car was really pretty. It's Nakamura's, or at least the reserved sign said CEO. She pointed to the kanji and translated. I'm sure it's his, I thought to myself, but he probably leaves the driving to his driver. You know, two men smoking cigarettes approached me. That's why this part is so shaky. Chiasa narrated and explained why the camera image suddenly shook, then dropped and turned upside down facing only a cement pillar. What were they saying? Not much. Just asked what I was doing. I played dumb, giggled like girls do, and told them I thought the car was pretty. So, she's an actress too, I thought to myself, and then remembered this was the same girl who pretended to be asleep on the plane ride for at least an hour. It's not the same as New York out here. No one is expecting anything to happen. We don't steal, and there's no crime. My mind drifted. I could tell that she believed what she was telling me, but I didn't believe either of her last statements. If there was no crime, what were all these crazy movies I saw when I was young? Amir and Chris and the whole movie theater of black faces cheering for gangs of Asian guys beating the life out of each other ruthlessly. Limbs were being broken, eyes poked out, bodies sliced up, and whole crews left for dead. They had to be fighting over something. Only them boys on my Brooklyn block fought over nothing. Clothes, kicks, and colors. Over buildings and territories they didn't own and couldn't afford. Over blocks, benches, and bullshit every fucking day. Nah, these Japanese cats were onto something major. 
the battle of billions, the war of nations, the push of politics. I just needed to slide my girl out from under their noses and leave them to their business. One thing Chiasa said did stand out in my mind. It sounded true, and I would use it to my advantage. No one is expecting anything to happen. It echoed in my mind. I was glad that they were not expecting anything to go wrong. I sent Chiasa inside while I made the Maghrib prayer at sunset. She had fasted for the first day of Ramadan and handled it easily. No food for 12 hours is a small thing to many, but no water or drinks of any kind is torture to those used to satisfying their thirst. So she did well under the red sun, yet I understood that she didn't know the meaning or reason of the holy month. In my prayers, I thanked Allah for the revelations of today. And I thanked him for Chiasa, who I believed Allah had sent as a helper. Also, I asked for guidance in all that I knew I would do in the Tokyo late night. I had already given the elephant Nakamura the day, and now things would shift. and brown rice with fruits she had offered me earlier. That's what Chiasa ate. I scooped peanut butter and ate it off the spoon the Sudanese way, without bread. I had three rice triangles called onigiri made of brown rice stuffed with a tablespoon of salmon and wrapped in a sheet of seaweed. They were simple and satisfying. I added a bag of raisins. On Ramadan, Many Muslims tend to eat light. Each year, Uma and I did the same. Chiasa's backyard was impossible to separate from the wilderness that surrounded us. The lone house, made of huge stone, had no neighbors but the flowers, plants, and trees. I also worked out back there. It felt better than working out in a small room indoors. In fact, it felt great. Let's go, Chiasa said. When I turned, she was wearing her dark blue dogi cut from a thick cloth. She had a deep blue skirt with a high waistband cut from a lighter weight fabric. The skirt was quality, I could tell. It was cut long, just above her ankle. Hanging across her back was a long sword inside a wickedly crafted cloth case. In her left hand, she held her gym bag. Let me take that from you, I said, reaching for her bag. She hesitated at first, but then handed it over to me. I smiled at her ways, naturally. She responded with four words, spoken softly and seriously. It's time to fight. I followed her out of her yard into Yoyogi Park. Curious, in a clearing, where the trees no longer gathered in an intense crowd and under the strength of the Tokyo moonlight, the dopest dojo I have ever entered was right there in Yoyogi Park, about a quarter mile away from where Chiasa's house was located. If she had wanted to impress me and capture my attention completely, in this moment, she had succeeded. 
with the beauty of the facility itself. The architecture appeared ancient and maybe had been constructed by 50 to 100 workers for some imperial or samurai, I imagined. The rooftops were not flat and without texture like I had seen in many places. The roofs were on wicked angles, swooped down and curled upwards at the end. The texture was created by baked and curved red clay tiles, each one laid near the other carefully and perfectly placed. I had seen this type of roof before in films where the scenery surpassed the story and ninjas tiptoed and glided so light and fluid like butterfly assassins to the complete shock and horror of their prey. Standing here in the night in a small clearing in the woods in the park facing this dojo, I felt like someone had dropped me into an ancient film that was already 50 minutes into the viewing. Come this way, Chiasa said. The fact that it was wider than any indoor fighting training space I had ever seen was not even its strongest point. The floor was made of bamboo, laid in perfectly for the length of a football field. It was so clean, flawless, and polished that it seemed impossible to imagine that anyone had ever placed a foot on it. The ceilings were 48 feet high. I pretended to myself that this was in case a fighter wanted to fly. The ceiling, too, was designed with great care and precision, like a complicated math problem. A craftsman had cut the entire ceiling into even squares and surrounded more than 200 squares with bamboo borders to outline and highlight its perfection. Some of the squares were lit up brightly, which the floors reflected, the light giving everyone the opportunity to see every movement that any fighter might make. Even in the hallways, the floors were incredible. The wooden seats placed at even distances and immovable so that no one could alter the order and the measurement and the count or the seating arrangement. The female fighters in Chiasa's class sat on their knees. Their silence and their form was elegant, their uniforms flowing with the, count, the contour of their bodies, not tight, not too loose. To the left of each was a face helmet, a type that I had never seen but admired. The male fighters sat across the room, their robes as expertly tied, tidy, and neat. The elder men sat at a table, which of course raised them above the heads of both their male and female students, who all sat with their swords to the side. At first I believed a sensei would take charge and begin to lead the class. On second thought, it seemed the presence of the elders signaled some kind of ceremony or ritual because I couldn't understand the language. I watched it like a video with the volume dropped out. This made my eyes pay even closer attention to each detail. An elder laid out several medals on the head table. An award ceremony, I guessed. Suddenly, Chiasa stood up, held her helmet at one side and swore at the other. She approached one of the elders and bowed before him. The elder man spoke softly to her and at length. Chiasa was completely subdued, silent, and humbled. 
At his last words, he lifted a gold medal with a red ribbon on it and placed it around her lowered head. She, in turn, did a deep bow before him. Quietly, she turned, her eyes seeming to survey the room. Then she walked over to another seated female fighter. She stood before her, then slowly put on her helmet. She tied its long strings back, her fingers moving expertly behind her head as though she had easily tied it a thousand times. With the helmet secured and in her full uniform, she looked completely different and more incredible to me. She raised her sword and lowered it at the head of the seated girl. Without notice, all the other seated fighters slid either to the left or the right and stilled once again on their knees, now all facing the girl who was left seated alone. Slowly, the girl stood up. She picked up her helmet. Before she covered her head, I realized that it was Yuka, the girl from the plane who had introduced herself to me uninvited by simply saying, let's trade music. I leaned forward on the wooden bleachers where I was seated and watched intently. The tremble of Yuka's fingers was so slight it could have been missed. She tied her helmet and raised her sword. It seemed to signal that she she had accepted the challenge. Chiasa crashed Yuka's head with the sword with a dizzying speed. It woke Yuka up and their battle began. The bamboo sword striking both the metal helmet and the thick dogi made loud crashes. Yet even louder were the warlike cries and shouts of Chiasa as she set to conquer and humiliate her opponent on the dojo floor. The style of fighting was unusual to me. The helmet offered too much protection, I thought. The fight was waged with the upper body and not the feet. Although their feet moved in a rhythmic dance, from the strike of the sword, I could calculate that they were both aiming only at the head, the throat, the stomach, and the wrists. The elders were transfixed and absorbed by the battle. Even I was completely drawn in. It seemed that men battle one another individually and in groups, gangs, and armies all across the globe, yet warring women mesmerized us all. No longer seated, the elders were each standing on their feet with their arms folded before them. Their eyeballs bounced and jumped at each movement the girl fighters made. Chiasa's style was unforgiving. When her and Yuka's raised swords met, she stepped in even closer and thrust Yuka backward. Yuka was propelled by the push, but caught herself from falling. She was lighter than Chiasa, although both of them were slim. Yuka danced forward again, her feet moving in a calculated rhythm. She raised her sword to strike Chiasa. Chiasa blocked her sword and moved out of the block faster than Yuka, striking both of Yuka's wrists in two sharp blows. An elder gasped. Yuka was hurt. One sensei yelled out something in Japanese. Yuka raised her sword again, her two hands tight on the sword grip. She charged Chiasa, but Chiasa altered her approach and didn't advance. Chiasa lowered her sword some as Yuka advanced and lunged it into Yuka's throat. And all the elders stepped in, calling out, calling out commands in Japanese. They each raised one hand, which caused the sparring to cease and acknowledged Chiasa had won. The match was finished now. The girls still faced one another, holding their form. 
In a precise movement, the girls raised their swords so that they touched. Then they dropped their swords at their waist and both took five steps backward. They both took a deep bow, acknowledging each other, both saying, Arigato gozaimasu. The politeness seemed important to the Japanese, even in the most heated and hateful exchanges. I was certain that I was not the only one who could feel that the fight between Yuka and Chiasa was more than just a practice or training exercise. It felt intense and personal. It felt deadly. Yuka returned to her original position on the floor and Chiasa remained standing. The fellow fighters applauded her now. When the helmets were off and the quiet resumed, Chiasa spoke out some words in Japanese to Yuka. Yuka's facial expression tightened. The elders spoke some words to Yuka, and it seemed whatever they had been debating was solved. Chiasa bowed again to the elder. Their bowing seemed endless. One bow led to another. Soon Chiasa left the room. I stood up from the top bleacher where I was positioned. Yuka's eyes connected with mine. Her face softened and filled with both surprise and delight. In the one second that it takes for a thought to occur, Yuga snatched back her warm expression and glared at me with the look of having been betrayed. I walked out to meet Chiasa wherever she had gone to. It didn't matter. I knew from the way they were swinging the swords at each other that I had to choose between them, and of course, easily, I had chosen Chiasa. Leaning against the wall opposite the women's locker room, I waited for her. Twenty minutes passed before I began to search around. Back in the main dojo, I stuck my head in. She wasn't there. Yet, as all of the fighters began to file out to the locker rooms, Yuka was on her knees, a cloth in her hand, wiping the floor. She was cleaning the cleanest and largest dojo floor I had ever seen. The elder who had spoken Japanese to her in a hardened tone was the only adult remaining. I closed the door. I had opened six doors before I located Chiasa behind the seventh. She wore now a black dogi and had donned a red belt, no helmet, no skirt, no sword. My entrance didn't break her concentration as she fought a girl wearing a black belt. Her sensei stood almost inside the fighting circle as though he was part of the match, or maybe he was a caution sign. Their fight ended seconds after my arrival. I wish I had seen it. I sat on an empty bench. Just as I believed that she was done for the night, I stood up. As I did, a Japanese youth stood also. He wore a black belt. As I watched, he and Chiasa bowed before one another and struck a stance. Chiasa, I called her out. The sensei, the fighters, and the guy she was about to fight all shifted their eyes to my, di my direction. Chiasa did not. She kept her eyes on her opponent. Her sensei said something to her. Chiasa answered him back in Japanese. The sensei spoke again, and then she spoke again. Her opponent said some words, and then Chiasa said to me, Come on, are you ready to fight? My opponent has yielded to you. The sensei watched me intensely, his blank face no longer reading caution. Now, he was a green light, and behind it was curiosity anticipation and fear of the unknown that I could sense and see. I had only called out to Chiasa because I didn't want her fighting a male fighter. I couldn't sit by and watch it for sport. 
Now she wanted to fight me instead of him. No problem. At least I knew I wouldn't strike or hurt her. My army green jabots were loose-fitting enough. My shoes were already off. I approached. We were both supposed to bow. She bowed. We both struck our stances. I recognized her perfect form, yet somehow it was entertainment to me. She showed me that it was not entertainment for her. Serious face, she angled left, and I made the first strike with her right foot followed by her right hand. (coughs) Excuse me. She angled left and made the first strike with her right foot followed by her right hand. I blocked both. She pulled back and moved both her feet and her eyes around looking for a suki. I could tell she wanted me to make a move. I didn't. Just watched her, moved my feet around, but held my hands in a defensive position. She lunged forward, striking out again with her right hand. When I moved to block, she moved her left leg like lightning and kneed me in my stomach. I held her right fist and twisted it and brought it behind her body to immobilize her. Purposely, my grip was not strong or tight. She used her left elbow a reverse move to strike me strategically against the left side of my jaw. I felt that. She had caught me off guard. I jumped back and looked at her and then smiled. She took my smile as an insult, ran up on me and leaped off the floor into a double flying kick. Instead of blocking, resisting or striking, I sidestepped and snatched up her body from midair. I threw her over my shoulder, then spun her around like a five-year-old to confuse her vision. I set her down on her feet. As she steadied herself, I took full advantage. Within three seconds, I folded Chiasa up and carried her out of the dojo in my arms with zero protest from her sensei and the fighters who she had been intimidating all night. As I moved swiftly past the passive observers with their female champion, no sword-swinging samurais or silent ninja assassins or karate killers emerged to defend her honor. I put her down on the ground outside the dojo. Then I sat down beside her. She smiled at me. Naturally, I smiled at her. I loved her spirit. All fire. See? Now you respect me, she said, slowing down her breathing. And I respect you more, she added. Two people can spend weeks together and never develop the respect that two fighters can earn in one match. I know that guys don't respect girls too much, so I fight to let them know I am Chiasa, a whole woman, not half a person. Treat me right. As we walked back through Yoyogi, all the lampposts switched off. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I was reminded of the complete blackness that enveloped my grandfather's southern Sudanese village when the moon and the stars went on break, as they sometimes do. I could smell the scent of pine trees and of the cypress and zelkova and oak all intermingling. I do respect you, Chiasa, I admitted. Arigato gozaimasu, she replied softly without bowing down. I was grateful. The Kikata sang as we moved in silence. I thought about how she was training in so many different fighting styles. Kendo, Kayudo, and Karate. She must have some reason pushing her. 
Chiasa, which style of fight is your favorite, I asked. I'm bored with it all. I don't want the bamboo practice sword. I prefer the blade, she said softly. I don't want to aim at a stable bullseye. I want to fire on a live, moving target. The real thing would kill your opponent, I cautioned her. As long as we both knew that before we fight. That's fair. Fair and square, she said without laughter. I left Yoyogi and returned to the Harajuku hostel, where I secured my luggage. Then I worked out, hard. As I was moving and training my muscles, my mind was formulating ideas and strategies, storing some in my memory and throwing the rest out. I drank five tall bottles of water when I finished. It's important to take in enough water during the night to keep your body working properly during the fast of the day. At 1.30 in the morning, I was showered and dressed, wearing my black nylon Nike suit and a black tee and my black uptowns, my gloves in my back pocket. I wanted my hands free, so I rocked a black Jansport containing the few items I might need. I stepped outside the Harajuku hostel, expecting shit on the streets to be winding down, but the Harajuku party seemed at a boiling point with all kinds of kids and kooks and characters milling around and mixing in with the young fashionable crews as well. Was it my imagination? Or as I began walking, did a huge chunk of the crowd begin to move in the same direction as me? I was accompanied and followed by about 150 youth and preceded by about 80 more as we all walked and squeezed down the tight Harajuku alleyway to the train station. Feeling like an actor in Thriller, I played the corner as the freaks packed the compartment of what I discovered was the last train for the night. As I moved through the network of underground tunnels that lies beneath Roppongi, I was not alone. There were many foreign men in motion, as well as Japanese men still suited up from work in groups of girls who I'd guess were from 14 to 25 years young. The crowds were not loud or rowdy, Everyone seemed focused on getting to a specific destination uninterrupted. I was noticing now that every Tokyo prefecture had its own personality. In fact, as you climbed up the endless stacks of stairs from the train to the outdoors, you could not find anything similar to the last stop that you came from. Each location would be completely new and unique. There were no wives mothers or children in Roppongi nightlife. For four blocks to the north and four blocks to the south and four blocks to the east and four blocks to the west were all nightclubs, hostess bars, and restaurants. As I moved in the night breeze, I blended right in, which made me feel some ease. Bruda, an African voice called out to me. Check it out. We have what you're looking for. You looking for girls, yes? He said oddly. He was 6'8", towering over me, a more massive giant in the land of little people. Dressed in a not-too-cheap suit, he extended his hand. Come now, he said. Club is free. Drinks cost money. Girls are very friendly. What do you like? Japanese girl, Russian girl, Swedish girl, American girl? You choose. I'm good, I told him. Ramadan Kareem, I added solemnly. Ramadan Kareem is a Muslim greeting offered to Muslims around the world at the start of the Ramadan fast. I could tell this man was from Nigeria. 
I also knew from flipping through my atlas and maps that they had almost 150 million people in their West African nation, most of them Muslim. By offering him the holiday greeting, I could move him out of my path and maybe off of his corrupt purpose. It backfired and piqued his curiosity and said, I am Olatunde, the Nigerian, he said, as he extended his hand, announcing himself as though he were his nation's representative. But here in Japan, friends call me Ola. When I didn't move or grasp or shake his hand, he took one step forward and looked down on me. Brooklyn don't break from no next man's menacing stare. That's hood basic 101. I stepped to his left to move beyond him and caught a glimpse of a four-foot-tall Japanese girl in eight-inch heels, the top of her head still barely above the Nigerian's Pierre Cardin belt. From behind him, she handed me a party card invite, a party card invite advertising the club that she was standing in front of. He turned and spoke harsh Japanese to her. She stepped all the way back to the club entrance. Tell Ola, what is your business here? You are in Ropangi for Ramadan. Surely you did not come here to pray in the land with no God. He smiled, a smile of satisfaction with himself. I'm good, I told him again, and stepped to his right, bypassing him. Before I was six steps away, I heard his rhyme begin again. My friend, club is free, drinks cost money, girls are very friendly. As I checked the late, late night, early morning scene, this appeared to be the formula, an array of Nigerians fishing for any men to come trick a pile of cash on some doe-eyed female wearing an evening gown, nightgown, or miniskirt, and there seemed to be no shortage of takers. When I reached the outer boundary of Rapongi Hills, The party scenes subsided, and the lights were not glaring. The residential section was separate from the chaos of the clubs. I put my gloves and wool hat on, believing that if I could move swiftly through the shadows, I would go unnoticed. There were not many people out. I mainly saw closed boutiques, (coughs) craft shops, and mini markets. The houses behind them were woven in and up and on the various hills and slopes and narrow paths. The hour of the night... The trees and gardens made my invisibility possible. I walked nonchalantly past the front of Akimi's father's house without moving my head to inspect it. To reach the backyard, I would have to walk past the front, uphill, make a right, and then another. So I did. There were two 15-foot-tall walls that ran down both sides of the street behind Akimi's house. At the top of the walls were bushes, and no matter left or right, all you could see was wall and bushes. But her neighbor had a tree with a sturdy trunk and heavy branches and leaves that shielded the house from street-level onlookers. The tree extended into the sky. It was now the second day of Ramadan, and I considered that tree my second blessing. As I climbed, gripping the bark with my gloves and my kicks, I cleared my mind of what-ifs and focused. I leaped from a branch onto the top of the wall. When I landed, my body brushed hard against the bushes. 
tiny little thorn sticking me enough to cause me to straighten up and balance and be mindful. I duck walked across to Akimi's side and when I got there, I attempted to see through the bushes into her yard, but the bushes were too dense. I considered clipping and clearing through the bushes and crawling through the clearing, but didn't because although I might be successful in getting in that way, the next morning, the gardener or any curious person would have just the evidence needed to confirm that someone had intruded on the property. Turning sideways, with my back now to the bushes and face to the wall, I pushed through the three-inch space between the wall and the bushes. The prickles scraped against my sweat jacket and pants and wool hat and socks and boots, but not enough to pierce my skin or cause my blood to flow. Her yard was darker than the streets, and all the house lights were off. No dog. Had there been one, he would have begun barking minutes ago when he smelled the unfamiliar scent of my presence, even as I climbed the neighbor's tree. Surveying, I counted four floors to the sturdy cement home, which resembled the best-built Brooklyn Brownstones Brooklyn Brownstones in its quality and the way it was carefully constructed. The top floors had cement terraces with no fire escapes. There was no ladder or means of climbing up or down from them. I began to walk in calculated steps. The grass crunched beneath my feet. Fortunately, the hum of a nearby generator should have made the sounds undetectable. I walked around the perimeter carefully and up to the east side of the house. It was all good until I reached the eastern corner that led to the front. I heard a click, and then some sort of motor started up. I saw a high beam approaching from the distance, and the heavy black iron gate that sealed off the front of their house began to open slowly. I eased back, pressing my body against the house on the dark side so as not to be exposed by the increasing light. Adrenaline released in me, and swiftly I walked backward to the backyard and crossed over to the west side of the house where I could escape the light and still see into the front. My jaw was tight, and I began taking deep breaths to overcome my anger. I didn't appreciate Nakamura creating a circumstance where I had to creep like a thief, but fuck it, he had. The car eased onto the property, but the bright headlights prevented me from seeing details. The gate remained open, so I was sure that there were at least two passengers inside, one who intended to leave. Otherwise, the gate would have closed behind them. The driver's door opened. A suited man leaped out and rushed around to the back passenger seat door. He opened it and stood patiently like an employee. The passenger took his time like an employer accustomed to being served would do. Nakamura finally emerged. The driver went into a series of bows to him and then ran around to the trunk. Nakamura followed, and now the trunk shielded my view of them both and any possible view they could have had of me. I took a couple of steps back to a darkened, 
ground level window and tested it to see if it would slide open. I was surprised when it did. I left it open by about only two centimeters, enough to stick my gloved fingers back in if I needed to. More confident now that I had a definite way inside of the house, I walked toward the backyard again to shield my presence and wait. As I moved, I happened to look up. Always look up, my sensei had taught me. And when I did, I saw for the first time that on the fourth floor of the west side of the building was a yellow light left on in an otherwise completely darkened house. Then I knew. I heard the front door of the house opening. The car was moving now, and I heard the sound of rocks beneath the tires. Then the ignition switched off, and the glare of the lights deaded. The car door opened and closed. I could tell by the sequence of sounds that the car had only been parked. The iron gate had not closed yet. Suddenly, I heard the sound of another car starting. The sound of the engine was a dead giveaway that it was a lower quality vehicle. It moved, the sound of the car getting further and further away. The front door of the house shut as the iron gate also began closing. Then the sound of the second car was no more. Carefully, I walked to the front again using the west side of the house. The Japanese Bentley was parked against the house at the front. The gleaming blackness of the exterior was glossier than the blackness of the night. I drew closer to look at it. The interior was pretty like Chiasa had said. The thick wool seats were piped out in thick leather, the seams solid and the inside incredible with granite fixtures, which would normally be used in a house. My stare into the car was broken only by the lights switched on in the house on the ground floor on the front eastern side. I dropped down beside the car, but did not touch it. I looked up. Another light came on then, on the second floor. Believing that Nakamura was now upstairs, I duck-walked over to the front door of their house. I had observed that the Japanese normally left their shoes lined up right outside of their house door before switching immediately into house slippers. Aside from Nakamura and possibly his daughter, who else could live here? A housemaid or butler or some security personnel. Yet, if there were any security personnel on their property, they were doing a poor job. I figured the shoes wouldn't lie to me. Using my pen light, I beamed on the first pair of shoes. It was a men's pair labeled Regal. I believed it was a custom-made shoe. There was a second label stitched inside embossed in kanji. I assumed it was Nakamura's name in kanji letters, their version of a monogram. I'd say the soft leather shoe with the streamlined design and careful stitching was valued at about a thousand American dollars. Obviously, they were the shoes that Naoko Nakamura had just eased his feet out of. A cheap pair of black women's work shoes. A cheap pair of white, well-worn, clean women's work shoes. A pair of expensive pink pumps. I moved my light back and forth over those. They were expensive, but not expensive enough to be Akimi's. Who would these belong to? 
and then I focused on the black leather spring Gucci boots. So lovely they got my blood boiling. The bottoms were designed like sandals, but the rings of thick black leather curled around all the way beyond the ankle and up the calves, imagining calves. Imagining my wife's pretty legs in them moved me, and I knew she had to have at least dropped 2,000 American dollars on those. And then there were the men's high-top converses seated beside them, a crime in and of itself. Who the fuck were those? The gardener? I answered myself, trying to calm, calm all the way down. With five pairs of shoes counted, the risk in this caper heightened. There was no way to tell where each of the people in the house who owned these shoes slept, or it, even if they were actually inside or not. I stood thinking, quietly. I opened my Jansport, pulled out Akimi's hundred thousand yen heels, and switched them with her Gucci's. I knew that if she saw the shoes that she had worn in New York with me to a wedding Uma and I had worked at, she would be 100% sure that I was here in Tokyo. Further, once she discovered that her Gucci's were gone, she would know that I switched them. The Japanese don't steal, right? So who else could have taken them? For now, alerting her that I was here in Tokyo would have to be enough for me. I had brought along the perfect clue. Angry and tight, I threw my Jansport on my back and walked away along the west side of the house. On the fourth floor, the yellow light still beamed. It was the same color of light that lit up the basement at shows where Akimi and I, newlyweds, first made love. It was the only light on the fourth floor that was on. Looking at it caused me to break my stride and to pause to think for a second. And then my legs started moving again. Inside of me, I began to feel more like an animal than a man. An angry animal. A hungry animal. And that fury worked its way through my chest. I left back out through the slot in the bushes. Like a tightrope walker, I walked the wall off Naoko's property and onto his neighbor's side. I leaped up onto the same tree, the tree of the blessing, and climbed the branch like a gymnast on the parallel bars. I swung my feet up and reached a sturdier branch and used it. I kept climbing until I saw a way down, then I dropped from the tree onto the neighbor's barren roof. I sprinted across and jumped 12 feet to land back onto Naoko's property, the rooftop. A black leopard can climb trees. In a tussle with the mighty lion, we are swift enough to snatch his meal and maneuver up to the high branches, leaving him below with no options but to watch and roar. Blood pumping swiftly, I checked it all out. There was a strange bubble in the center of the roof, but I didn't move toward it. A tilted, white tent in one corner began to worry me. Was someone inside? Would Nakamura be strategic enough to station security on the roof? Nah, not likely. If so, how could he sleep through the thump of my jump over here and be considered a real professional security man? I did not approach it, though. 
Instead, I looked over the top and down into the backyard and dropped down onto the terrace, the one positioned next door to the window on the west side with a yellow light. The darkened window was halfway opened. I moved the glass slowly to the left and peered beyond the thin sheer curtain. There were two girls asleep in one queen-sized bed. The one closest to the window where I was was not a kini, but the one wrapped in the colorful silk robe was. My pulse picked up and began racing, even though I held my perch stiff as a statue. I didn't have to worry about anyone seeing me from the street as I squatted on the terrace. I already knew that the wall, the bushes, and the trees shielded all views. Still, I didn't want to linger long, yet how would I get her attention without arousing the other girl? Forty-five seconds and an idea formed. I remembered how she and I slept in my single bed in my Brooklyn bedroom. She used to think that my body was warm, and she would wrap her leg around me as she slept, her face on my chest, her hands on my balls, her hair brushing against my chin. We breathed together. When I shifted, she glued herself to my back and eased her arm through my arm, her fingertips brushing lightly against my stomach. Akini vibing so hard on me that when I would awaken, she awoke a second after, as though she could feel and measure my breathing as she slept, as though she had one pinky finger on my eyelids as we slept to alert her about when I, when I awakened. But she did not. She was just full of feelings, my feelings, her feelings, whether she was sleeping or awake. I guess I could call her a light sleeper. I was hoping so, and I could hear the subtle snore of the girl closest to me. I pulled out the bottle of Sudanese perfume that I had wrapped in a white washcloth in my backpack. It was the scent that Uma had made and blended only for Akimi and gifted to her at our Walima. I poured a little on my clean white washcloth and tossed it over toward Akimi's pillow. A powerful potion. The scent filled up the room. It was the same scent that had disguised the natural aroma of our lovemaking. Seconds passed, and she shifted her body, her robe falling open. More seconds, and she lifted her head. A few more seconds, and she sat, and she sat up. I could hear the scent racing of her nostrils as she inhaled, but she was still. Suddenly, she pulled her legs around and slipped her feet into her slippers. Slowly, she stood. She walked out of the room and into the hall. My only thought was that she went went to the ladies' room. I removed my wool cap and my gloves. I stuffed them in my back pocket and I removed my Jansport, took off my jacket, turning it inside out and laid it on the floor of the terrace. While hearing her urine trickle softly, slowly I crouched and waited, balancing my weight on my toes. The faucet sent water gushing down, the rhythm broken only by her fingers, washing her fingers, one hand to the other. Her footsteps were completely silent. She reappeared in the bedroom without notice. 
Her well-curved Asian artist's eyes peered through the darkness with only a dim moonlight to highlight my silhouette. She stood still, staring. Then she closed her eyes. She reopened them and concentrated. Seconds later, her eyes filled with tears. I didn't move, didn't say nothing. Her tears spilled to the floor. She walked toward me, slowly, silently, and when she reached me, she punched me in the chest with two limp fists and then laid her head there. I wrapped my arms around her and held her tightly, feeling her figure five pounds lighter than usual. Her body heated up inside mine, and her silent tears soaked through my t-shirt. I knew she wanted to say that I had made her wait too long, but it had been 7,000 miles of separation, and it was only with Allah's grace and my father's diamonds and advice that I was able to embrace her now. I had missed her so much. Both my heart and my body ached. Surviving that feeling was only possible by ignoring it. Picking her up into me and standing, I eased both of us outside and onto the terrace. I leaned against the terrace and she leaned against me, pressing her body against mine, easing her hands beneath my t-shirt. She was feeling me all over, slowly causing me to feel so aroused that all thought and caution disappeared and nothing but emotion and touching remained. I moved my hands beyond the silk of her lovely robe and rested them on her butt and went down further, feeling the skin on the back of her thighs. Her breathing picked up and now her slim fingers were easing up my arm and her nipples were poking out through the silk and pressing against my chest. She caressed my muscles and eased to my shoulders and with her perceptive fingertips paused and felt my stitched up shoulder wound. She inhaled in surprise and withdrew her body from mine by a few inches. Her eyes looked into mine to question what she had felt. I removed my t-shirt to show her and lowered my shoulder and lowered my shoulder to her eye level. She touched touched it again and looked as though to ask me, does it hurt? I shook my head no. She licked my wound and pulled the loose stitches out with her teeth. She sucked her tongue as though she enjoyed the taste of it. She touched my fingertips and pulled my hands slightly to show me she wanted us to go back inside. She is my wife. During Ramadan, I could go into her only at night. The sun was down and had not signaled a desire to rise yet. Of course I wanted to follow her had a strong feeling to push inside her. After only one week of separation from her sweetness, I knew that I couldn't risk going into her now, she being balm to my heart and comfort to my soul and pure joy to my physical, perhaps the mother to my seed, daughter to my umma, sister to my sister. If I followed her inside, only to have her yanked, ripped, stolen away from me once again, then what? Or maybe she would walk away from me out of some exaggerated loyalty to her father. That would be too much. To open my heart freely without any hesitation, 
I needed to be sure, as sure as I am, that when my head leaves the room, my body comes along with it, unquestionably, willingly, automatically, because they belong together. So I asked her the question that had been as lurking as a lurking thought eight days ago. I had suppressed it at first, yet the thought kept revisiting me, so much so that I had looked it up and translated it into Japanese for this exact moment. Era bete oto-san, matawa oto, Tokyo, matawa, New York, I said slowly. It meant, choose father or husband, Tokyo or New York. Her eyes revealed great surprise at my using her language. She began to whisper to me in return in full, relaxed, fluent Japanese. I stared at her, saying nothing and with no response. She paused, her Japanese words growing softer and softer until they were no more. She smiled, a bright, wide smile, knowing that she was teasing me using her native tongue so sweetly. So seductive is her smile and her use of her language. I had to restrain my own passion, remain solid and say solemnly again, Erapete, choose. She lowered her head and then her eyes. Then she raised them back up slowly. Mayonaka, New York City. Hi, she said warmly with no sign of doubt or regret. Today, we meet today at Roppongi Station at two, I told her in English and then in Japanese. Akimi and Mayonaka, two, hi, she repeated. Yakosuku. Yakusuku, promise, I asked her. Hi, Yakusuku, she said, meaning yes, I promise. I picked up my knapsack from the terrace floor. I unzipped it and pulled out the book that had been weighing on my mind. It was a gift that I had promised her in our marriage contract, a holy Quran written entirely in the Japanese language. I wanted her to understand that I was a serious man with a serious faith and that as my wife, she and I had to grow together in many ways. It was not okay to me for us to be in different countries growing apart instead of together. It was not okay to me for her to be surrounded by other men, even her father, in place of me. We needed to become of one similar mind and way. Our lovemaking was explosive already and fresh in my memory, in my body, and in my groin. I knew I could have her whole body tingling with powerful movement and pure pleasure. I knew I could make her express herself sexually so hard that her legs would collapse. That was only seconds away. Yet, I had to show her that I was more than the most powerful feeling that she has ever felt. I am a true believer who would love her forever, protect her with my own life, exchange my life for hers, and disconnect her father's head from his neck if he ever again interrupted my peace, kidnapped my wife, or threatened my seed to come. She needed to learn the meaning of Ramadan, and the mercy it brought alive in the Muslim heart. 
because it is this mercy which shielded me from charging down two flights and slaying him in his own home after making sweet love to his cherished daughter, my wife. She moved her pretty fingers across the dark blue, hardcover engraved Holy Quran. She opened it. She read in Japanese the first page, the first few lines. The surah is called the opening in English. I loved the sound of her speaking. Although it was new to her, she read the lines with feeling. I knew the words in Arabic by heart. So even though I didn't know them in Japanese, I could still feel their meaning. She looked up to me and closed the cover. Arigato gozaimashita. Arigato gozaimashita. She bowed all the way down to me, head toward the floor. I lifted her up until she was standing once again. In this moment, I didn't want to mix it up. She would love me intensely and treat me with great respect. We should serve one another loyally and fight and struggle through any troubles side by side. Yet, she should worship only Allah, and so should I. If we both did that, our love would in turn be unbreakable. She ducked down to enter back through the window and said only, Please. Her robe was lying on each side of her leg, revealing the flesh inside her thighs. The moonlight shone on her pretty toes, still soft and beautiful, still pedicured light lavender with a thin line and dark purple around each border. I stuffed my t-shirt in my jansport and threw my sweat jacket back on. Of course, I followed her in. She laid the Quran on her desk silently and walked the eight steps past her sleeping friend or relative. Then we walked down a dark corridor. She stepped into a washroom but did not turn on the light. After moving around a bit and running the water, soon she came out. I could smell the alcohol that she used to carefully wipe my shoulder where the stitches had been. Then with a hot cloth, she wiped my face and then my hands lovingly. She stepped back into the washroom again and came out linking her fingers onto my fingers and walking ahead of me into a closet. She closed the door behind us and we were in a tight, empty space facing one another. I looked up only to see the sky. She turned around and placed her hands into the wall and began climbing upwards, following her I placed my hands into the indentations also, thinking what a clever design, a ladder made by pockets in the otherwise wooden wall. You place your foot in the lower pocket and your hand in the middle pockets and climb, a pattern that went all the way up until your head hit the top. At the top, she pressed a button. A sound like hydraulics on a car lifted the skylight lid. She crawled through and immediately turned to check me. Her face so sweet and gentle, and her hair falling onto my hand, which was gripping the last pocket. We chilled on the rooftop, completely absorbed with one another. Asses on the ground of the roof and backs leaning against the short wall. She knew me well, felt what I felt, and sensed that I would feel more at ease not lying in a bed inside her father's house. Our naked bodies sprawled across the mattress, deep in the deepest love. Me lost in the sweetest, in the sweetness of my wife. First a target, then a dead man caught off guard at my most vulnerable point. 
the surface of the roof was cold. It must have been sizzling when yesterday's sun was at its peak. For some few minutes, we wasn't saying shit. Our silence was seduction to me. Talking is sometimes overrated. On a cold train cut called My Favorite Things, My Father's Choice, the instrument spoke without words or a songstress to interpret or suffocate his horns with the weight of lyrics. Our situation was like those sounds and melodies. I pulled her badass Gucci sandal boots out of my Jansport and returned them to her. She looked at me curiously and then laughed a quiet laugh. She slid her little feet into those sandals, lifted one leg to show it off to me, and stood up suddenly. She hiked up her silk robe to show me her style. I was her mesmerized viewer as she danced around slowly, taking turns, kicking each of her legs up high with great grace and ease. She struck a pose. Her body was curved, one hand holding her foot up in the air like a phenomenal flamingo. Instead of applauding, I leaped up and grabbed her around her waist, swinging her around and down gently. Her robe opened completely and her skin glowed in the softened moonlight. She licked my lips once, like she was licking an ice cream cone that she really enjoyed, then wiggled loose and began crawling away from me. So nervous that I might not be following her, she would crawl some and look back at me, her eyes shining like a cat's and not worried about scraping up her pretty knees or shoes or nothing. As she crept inside the tilted tent, I caught her ankle and pulled it lightly. I released it easily, knowing that she liked to make love in strange places. Face down and me right behind her, she pushed a tiny switch on a strange little lamp inside a clear jar. As she lay on her side to face me, I reached over and pulled one of the brushes down from her easel. The lamp sent white polka dots swirling around the dark tent. I smiled at her sweet craziness. She smiled, believing, I guess, that I liked her little light. Slowly, I began stroking her with the brush beginning with her face. Her good feeling was revealed as her lips parted with excitement. Her eyes were filled with passion, love for me, and mystery. As I stroked it down, her skin was soon covered with tiny goose pimples, and her nipples were fully extended. As I tickled her silky hairs below, she inhaled and whispered only one word, please. I ignored her purposely, brushing the inside of her thighs and over her kneecaps and onto her calves calves. She placed her pretty hand over her private parts and asked me again, please, Mayonaka. I don't know which set of lips was sweeter. I kissed her mouth gently and naturally the kiss grew more powerful. Me sucking her tongue, Akimi licking my neck, me sucking her neck and becoming so excited that she snatched my hand and placed it down below, pressing her fingers over mine so I would press her. One of her legs was... was straight up in the air, the weight of her little foot in her pretty sandals resting on her toes. I pulled my mouth away from hers and moved it down between her thighs where she wanted it. As I swirled my tongue around, she began to moan and purr, her whole body beating, pulsating like a heart. (sighs) There was a light rainfall, more like a mist. She threw her hand back over her head as her wriggling body was calming. As I lay my back, lay on my back beside her, she wrapped her whole self around me, curled into me, saying nothing. But I knew 
she was saying that she had never wanted to be separated from me in the first place and she never wanted to be separated from me again. I stroked the hair on her head now and even this excited her. She placed her pretty toes beneath the band of my sweats and played with me. She used one foot to undress me. I entered her so powerfully I could feel her opening and wrapping around me like a tight elastic and strong as I was with her there were feelings mounting on top of emotions the inside of her felt so good to me she kept moaning my mind was gone and my body a network of nerves experiencing a feeling too intense to place into words as I moved her and tossed her and bent her I could feel her nails scratching into my back and I liked that shit I welcomed it. I passion marked her neck and body with my mouth because she is mine. She marked me with her nails because I am hers. We mashed, moved, and pumped and grinded like that until our own bodies could not take the pureness of it anymore. She is my girl, my woman, my wife, over and over and over and over and over again. My every touch brings down her Victoria Falls. I once even believed that she was being aroused by only my stare into her eyes. There is this look that she has at that precise moment when all of her energy is released. There is extra moisture in her eyes as though she is about to cry, but it, but she isn't. She bites her own lip and then releases it and quivers. I knew for sure that she was not a woman to be left unattended and unguarded. I was the first and only to create that feeling inside of her, and I knew that she wanted and needed me to do that. To create that powerful feeling in her constantly, I wanted it also. She was teaching me many things about myself that I never had the opportunity to learn from any other woman. First, it was not just the sex. It was something particular about this girl. She raised up a feeling in my heart and in my body so extreme, her every movement moved me. Simply, simply her sitting or standing and the beauty of her joyful tears, which came so rapidly and streamed so softly and fell so silently. Her smile and cleverness, her art, her body, her language, her complete admiration of me. She had me locked, naturally locked up with no cuffs or prison or warden simply locked into specifically her. I learned about myself also, that I love intensely beautiful things. It could be a finger or a neck, toes, or even some mean ass shoes or exotic eyes and skin that glows. I love pretty fingernails and pretty hairs and even the way a beautiful girl rocks a beautiful handbag made of crocodile and crafted well. And my love for genuinely beautiful things, pure things, and clean things in both extreme and exclusive is both extreme and exclusive. Akimi is a beautiful thing. My beautiful thing. I found my lips pressed against her left ear, breathing warm breath. Two o'clock today at Ropongi Station. Bring everything that you can't leave behind. She flipped off the strange lamp and the globs of polka dot patches disappeared. She crawled upwards on my body, her hair touching my neck and said, To Roppongi Station, Akimi, 
mayonaka isho 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 forever she kissed me in my ear and set it off all over again we laid glued onto one another her thighs were still wrapped loosely on me i flipped her around laid her down and checked my watch it was four o'clock in the morning there was one hour left to sunrise i felt around in the darkness for my clothes and eased into them i looked into the crazy tilted tent with my pen light i was thinking to myself that i should have known that this tent belonged to akimi who else would have placed a rickety hut on top of a sturdy attractive impressive million dollar Rapongi hills home and preferred to live there I imagined that she sat in here when she needed to feel that kind of isolation that made her create such powerful drawings and paintings. In fact, she had one mounted on her little easel right then and there. It was a drawing of various sets of eyes. The magnificence of it, however, was that I could recognize in the drawing her eyes, Uma's eyes, Naja's eyes, and even my own. I smiled. I was glad I hadn't seen the details of the drawing while I was loving her. It would have been real strange to see Uma's eyes watching me giving it to my wife with no restraint. And those eyes that I was seeing with the help of my pen light were definitely my mother's. Akimi's skill was that great. She filled her drawings with so much emotion that each set of eyes let off a unique energy and contained the story of its owner's life. Aside from these four sets of eyes, there were three more sets. The eyes at the center of her canvas had to be her father's. The drawing of his eyes contained different feelings, anger, control, coldness, and even concern, which she conveyed by the strokes and shadings of her pencils and brushes, down to every detail, including the eyelashes, their precise shape, length, and width. She captured it all, amazingly. Oddly, though, there were only eyes, no faces or eyebrows, no head, hair, or chin. It was a drawing that felt to me like it came from her soul and not her hands. I caught sight of a pretty ceramic teapot and one cup as well as a box of sesame crackers off in the tent's corner. I drank her leftover tea and crunched a couple of her sesames. Then I closed her robe over her pretty petite body. I didn't wake her. I wanted to, but I wanted more that she not see me leaping across the rooftops and jumping onto the branches as I left the same way that I had arrived. But of course, she was awake. She said softly, Mayonaka to Roppongi Station. Hi. And I was so smart. She didn't move to watch me leave. I pinched her butt and I was out. Thank you.